God's word for us this morning. Isaiah 1, beginning in verse 21, give your attention to the reading of God's perfect word. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lie and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed, for they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen, for you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and a garden without water, and the strong shall become tender, and his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together, with none to quench them. So far the perfect word of God, and now may he Bless its preaching to our hearing. As was mentioned in the prayer requests, Andrew isn't here this morning because he's at his own college graduation. COVID has done strange things with commencement ceremony schedules. But Andrew's lament this week to several of us was not that his ceremony is two years late. It was that it's on a Sunday. And his alma mater in name and tradition is a Presbyterian college. That had him thinking about his school. He sent some of us other laments over text. He sent me another one this morning as he walked around the campus. The campus plastered with administration-endorsed signs that affirm every sexual orientation except the one which is biblically designed. And this is the current state of a school that was begun as an agency of the Presbyterian Church, a school whose original academic curriculum required students to take moral and natural philosophy and evidences of Christianity. For Christian alums like Andrew, though they may have fond memories of the place, they look at it now with a sense of lament. You may feel that way about institutions that you've been a part of in the past. It's It's a mix of emotions. It's shock and frustration, yes, but it's also dismay. And beneath those emotions lie the questions, how did it get here? And where does it go from here? Isaiah with the vision of what God now sees in the lives of his own people, has just that tone toward Judah here. 
And those same questions, how did they get here? And where do God's people go now? And in light of Isaiah's drastic attempts to provoke self-awareness in last week's passage, God's people should have some questions for themselves also. One commentator suggests they should ask, what have we become? And what does God do with people like us? But like our brother Andrew's alma mater, or any individual blinded by their own sin, these questions don't get asked. Because people think they're doing just fine. And like God's people in Isaiah's day, they've got it all wrong. In the first part of this morning's passage, Isaiah laments the wickedness in Judah. He sees what they ought to be, who God made and called them to be. But then he sees what they have become in their idolatry and rebellion. Verse 21 starts with the Hebrew how. It's a clue that this is a lament. The book of Lamentations and many biblical lamentations start just that way. How did we get this way? He says how the faithful city has become a whore. One reformer wrote that the prophet cries aloud as if some monstrous thing has been seen. He's trying to get their attention The people think that they're fine. But Isaiah has a vision of what's true. God's once faithful people have become anything but. Faithfulness is at the core of what it means to be a spouse. But Israel is playing the harlot. Righteousness used to reside safely in the city, but she's now had to move out. And the murderers have taken up residency. The princes, the ruling class, they don't punish this evil. They participate in it. Everyone, it says, is on the take. Everyone looking out only for their own interests. There is no justice. Not even for the least among them. The fatherless and the widow. Now this kind of description is not rare in the Bible. The Philistines were guilty of abominable practices. The Assyrians committed great atrocities. The Old Testament is filled with verses like this. But the reason for the prophet's lament is that these aren't pagans. These are God's own people. This is the Old Testament church, and not only are they practicing evil, but they don't even see what they're doing is wrong. What will it take to wake them up? What does it take for someone or some ones to see their sin clearly enough that they begin to hate it as God does? Do we see our sin that way? Do we see our sin? Sin, even our our pet sins, our favorite ones, do we see them as something that God hates? And that as a follower of God, we should hate too. Whitaker Chambers was a former communist spy turned key witness in one of those trials of the century. I learned this week just how many trials of the century there have been, by the way. This was just one of them. But this one was during the Cold War. 
And in his biography, he tells the story of talking to the daughter of a former German diplomat who had turned into an anti-Soviet informant. He'd made this massive shift in worldview. And the man's uh, chambers asked the man's daughter how this happened. How did your dad flip? from such a staunch supporter of the Soviet cause to being a total vocal enemy. And she said, you must not laugh. He was immensely pro-Soviet. And then one night in Moscow, he heard the screams. That's all. He heard the screams. What he saw, or in this case heard, was evil for what it is. Seeing evil as evil changed everything about what he believed. And that's why Isaiah says God's people need most a vision of how wicked they've become. Isaiah is crying out on behalf of the victims of sin and injustice. God, most of all hoping that they will hear and see and turn. He tells them what they do not see. It's verse 22, your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. They think they're doing just fine. Silver and wine, hypocrites rarely see their own hypocrisy, right? They think their lives are producing something of value. They think they're justified in when they're speech and blameless when they act. But the prophet of God is not impressed. God had given Isaiah a a different and better way of seeing the world. That's what this vision is. And God sees truth. And so with this lens, this vision that God has given Isaiah, he sees that the people have it all wrong. All is not well. They may fool themselves, but they are not fooling God. And the rulers, the judges, the counselors, they're no exception. In some ways, the people are simply going as they're led. That leadership does not excuse the people's sin. It doesn't let them off the hook. You're responsible for your own moral choices. But it is also the case that the leaders of God's people will be judged more harshly. They not only stray away from God in their own lives, but they lead and direct others down that path as well. One pastor said, no disease is more harmful than the one that spreads from the head to the whole body. And so no evil is more destructive among people than when a ruler is depraved. If you lead or teach God's people in any context, you must remember how much is required. Isaiah sets the example of godly leadership, and it's not easy to do in a situation like this. He must be direct about the ugliness and the pervasiveness of sin so as to encourage self-awareness and repentance in the people. And he must also speak with powerful affection for the grace and forgiveness of God so that the repentant are not discouraged and driven to despair. This is a good balance for all of us to learn and apply in our relationships and especially with our children. Firm and direct enough to show that sin is ugly and evil, but speaking powerfully enough about the grace and forgiveness of God that people are given hope and something to turn to. 
In these first three verses, Isaiah makes it very clear that the people are not walking with God. Look at all the words he uses. Unfaithful, murderers, dross, rebels, thieves, corrupt, selfish. The people think they're doing fine, but this is what God sees. And given that list, the charges against God's people, verse 24 sets us up for what's going to happen next. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. The prophet is telling us that God has seen all this sin, the idolatry, the wickedness, the injustice. No one is getting away with anything. The Lord of hosts sees and he will act. And what the thoughtful hearer thinks is that this means total destruction is coming. Look at this list of sin. Contrast it with God's holiness. He's going to come in his wrath against sin, and he will be just when he destroys them all. You have the horrific charges in verse 23. You have God's angry resolve against sin in verse 24. And you're set up to expect God to follow through with complete destruction of the wicked but we've got it all wrong. And much to our surprise, God's intention is to redeem. Oh yes, God burns with wrath against the sin of his people. And those who ultimately return to him will feel the weight of his chastisement here, but not in final judgment. I read this week, someone, they said, God utters his warning with a kind of groan. Nothing is more in line with God's nature than to do good. So whenever God is angry with us and treats us harshly, it is certain that our wickedness has compelled him to be like this. He will wake us up out of our stupor. The people of Judah thought that they were linked to God's blessing not by faithfulness or holiness, but by history and genealogy. And when God says that he will get relief from his enemies and avenge himself on his foes, their first thought is, good, we don't like those people either. But they've got it all wrong. They are those people. God's hand here is turned against them. And we'd expect it to spell complete disaster. But God surprises us with instead an invitation to hope. Look at verse 25. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lie and remove your alloy. And I will restore your judges as the first and your counselors at the beginning. And afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. When his hand turns against his people, it's not to destroy them. It's to purify them for redemption. Smelt away your dross as with Rye, remove all your alloy. Kids, when I lived in Charlotte, a good friend of mine got a job at the giant steel mill that's there. 
And I learned that when you mine metals out of the earth, they come out in what's called ore, the rock or sediment that's usually several metals mixed together with a bunch of impurities and junk mixed in. And to get the metal you're looking for, you put it in a smelter with this massive fire underneath it that will burn off all of the impurities and separate out the metals. And so my friend got me a a tour of the steel mill and I had the chance to go see and even stand just a few feet away from an industrial smelter, the giant cauldron where they produce the massive steel rebar we use in all these bridges and skyscrapers. And I remember looking at that thing from a few feet away and thinking, that is the hottest thing I have ever seen. I'm surprised I'm not dead just standing here. It was a little painful just to be that close to it. That smelter has nothing on God's wrath against sin. If God's wrath against sin were poured out on us with the intent to destroy, we would have no hope. That's what Isaiah will be afraid of in a few chapters when he says, I have seen the Lord. I'm done. I'm undone. I saw a taste of God's holiness. I can't stand this close to that. But the work that God promises to do here among those who repent, it burns. But it leads not to death, but to life. Because he's offering to purify us. To burn off the sin nature and the rebellion that prevents us from fellowship with him. Verse 26, he restores them. He makes us righteous. He brings us back into the condition that we need to be in order to enjoy fellowship with him. Another pastor wrote, the purification of the church is God's own work. He always lifts up his hand to punish transgressors that he may bring back wanderers. The purifying fire that God sends to his own church against our sin is not to destroy us. It's to bring back us when we wander. It's to make us pure and ready for the day of Christ's coming. What we would expect to be unloving chastisement and ultimately destruction for our rebellion is actually a refining fire designed to make us more like Christ, to make us ready to be in his presence. It's not something we can do ourselves. It's not something that can be done any other way. And it may be something that hurts Self-awareness, seeing the ugliness of our own sin against God and one another is painful. Repentance is painful to the pride, to the ego. But they save. And that pain gives way to joy. Isaiah's vivid description of the people's sin told them they have it all wrong when it comes to understanding their condition. And now in his description of God's avenging himself on his foes, we see they get it all wrong again. His wrath is not destruction. It's a call to repentance. It's an invitation to hope. The righteousness required by his righteousness, he will produce in us. What they need to do is to see their sin and to turn. So why don't they? 
I mean, if you hear about God's willingness to save those who turn to him, if you, if you hear that you will not be destroyed when you bring your sin to the foot of the cross, why don't more people repent? By now, you can probably guess where I'm going. Though they hear the words of the offer, they've got it all wrong. They hear that God has this desire to save that God is willing to forgive sin, that God loves even these rebels, and they get it all wrong. Because what they conclude is that God will not destroy anyone in their sin. They think it doesn't matter what they do. They think they will not reap what they have sown. And that's why Isaiah continues in verse 28, but rebels and sinners shall be broken together. All the way through verse 31, the strong become tender and his work a spark and both of them shall burn together. Their very works will be their destruction. Whatever else you may do or not do in this life, there is one thing that must be done. There is no getting around the need to repent. Those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. But people hear the word grace and that God forgives and that God is love and they quickly morph the biblical definitions of these things into a kind of cheap grace that excuses everything they do, even apart from genuine repentance. There's no real wrath of God coming, they say. But they have it all wrong. They're not alone. Just a few years ago, the Presbyterian Church USA was updating their denominational hymnal. They were reviewing modern hymns to add, as our Trinity Psalter hymnal did a few years back. And one of the hymns that they wanted to add was Keith Getty and Stuart Townsend's In Christ Alone. But they had a problem. They didn't like one part of the third verse. And they reached out to the hymn writers, and the hymn writers said no. You can't rewrite the third verse. And so the selection committee voted against including it. The reason that in Christ alone is not in the updated hymnal of the Presbyterian Church USA is because that hymn has the line, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Isaiah's Judah And liberal Christianity have this in common. No desire or willingness to see and understand the holy purposefulness of God's wrath. A famous critique of this perversion of Christianity described it as a religion where a God without wrath brought man without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the work of a Christ without a cross. Through the prophet Isaiah, God is confronting his people with the truth. Because what they're doing with their lives matters to him. They will either continue in their sin and rebellion and perish. Or they will see their sin. Turn to him in repentance and purified by his wrath against Christ on the cross. They shall live Do you know what people prefer to the refining fire of God and its pain? 
They prefer their own strength. I don't just mean those people out there. I mean this person standing here tends to prefer his own strength. That's what Isaiah means by the metaphorical oaks and gardens of verses 29 and 30. But what we think will save us is ultimately our undoing. Reliance on our own strength is what keeps us from repentance, and that keeps us from life. The strong, verse 31 says, will become tender, and their self-reliance will be the spark that sends it all up in flames. This is the outcome for those who remain blind to their sin, or for those who do not hate their sin, and for all who do not repent of their sin. The imagery throughout most of this passage is stark. Things that are supposed to be one way, that you expect to be one thing, are turned revoltingly into the opposite. A faithful city is like an attractive, beautiful bride, and Judah looks like a cheap floozy. The silver is dross. The wine is tasteless. The mighty oak's strength are now shameful. Fertile gardens have withered and died. You guys, sin is ugly. Our sin and our idolatry disfigure us. They pervert the image of God in us into a revolting shell of what we were made to be. And sometimes the only person who doesn't see it in us is us. Another pastor observed, redemption, on the other hand, is beautiful. To see a new human being rise from the wreckage is moving. And he makes the point, think about it, all the books and the movies we love, we love the redemption part. We love a comeback story. But remember, redemption in the movies is not like redemption in the kingdom of God. In those stories, redemption is for the person who's picked themselves up by their own bootstraps and by their own strength. They make things right. They do it better this time. They do what they previously failed to do. They come through in the clutch. That's redemption in a movie. It makes for a lovely story. But spiritually, it makes for the end of this morning's passage because it's not biblical redemption. Spiritually, we can't even start that self-improvement project, much less finish it in ourselves. Only God can build the faithful city. Only God can redeem the harlots and their rebellion against him. And only God can make a rebel righteous. Where's your hope? If it's in your own strength, There is no real hope for you. Isaiah calls us to hope in the Lord. And redemption is here, just not in the way we expect. Redemption begins with crying out against the repulsiveness of our sin. Someone else showing us just how ugly it's become. And it points us to the powerful Sometimes the painful, refining fire of God's holiness 
It tells the truth about the ineffectiveness of our own strength. While demanding that we use the strength that God gives to turn daily to him in repentance. We have a lot of work to do. It's just not in our own strength. And though our sins warrant that we should be destroyed, this redemption offers instead life forever with God. Before we had eyes to see, none of it is as we thought. Not our sin, not our redemption, not our sanctification and holiness. None of it is what we thought it would be. And thanks be to God, we had it all wrong. 